Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloomingdale Church Podcast. I am your moderator, Max Terman, and I am joined this week by, uh, I've already forgotten your title, Young Adults, Young Families Pastor. I am joined by Young Families Pastor, uh, Dan Marcello. Hey, everybody. Worship Director, Scott Reed. Hello. And Associate Pastor, Bill Calvin. Hello. Uh, I want to give each of us a chance to kind of go around, um, talk a little bit, just like a couple sentences about, you know, what the favorite thing that you've seen in your ministry, just so we can establish who we are. Um, Dan, do you mind starting? Yeah, for sure. So being the Young Families and Missions pastor here at Bloomingdale Church, one of my favorite things, it, like, I have a couple of favorite things, so it's going to be hard to limit myself to two sentences, <laughs> but I really love seeing people engage in missions and God's work international both international and here at home, sharing the gospel, and also seeing families come to breakthrough moments, aha moments of trusting in Christ and learning to depend on Him, even in hard circumstances. Nice. Scott? Yeah, as uh, the worship director here, I think something that I just really love is when, um, for whatever reason, the congregation just really engages in our times of musical worship. Um, again, that could be for any number of reasons, a song that they really love, or it's really a beat, or it's just the energy in the room that day, I don't know. But um, there's, there are certain times where even above what I'm hearing in my monitor and what I can hear of the band, you can still hear the congregation just singing out, and you can see them too, and that's just really awesome. Hmm. Bill? My favorite things to do at church are Alpha, the outreach program that I've been doing here for 17 years. I still love doing that every week, and although it just finished it was a blast doing the bible breakfast club this past year mm. and discussing the scriptures of people over breakfast yeah for sure um and i would say i do a lot of little things <laughs> i do about a hundred tiny things um but the thing that i would say is what you said scott of i love especially the 11 o'clock service you can just really hear them on sundays mm. and it's really cool to be uh singing um and uh, one of the most powerful moments I had at Wheaton was when I first got there. We had worship together, and I was like, I can hear people who believe what I believe, who are my age, who are singing. So I think that's really cool. Um, well, let's begin, as we always do, as uh, longtime listeners will be familiar, uh, with prayer. <laughs> um, so, uh, Bill, would you mind just leading us in prayer real quick? Sure. Lord, we offer this hour to you and pray that you fill us with your spirit, that we do glorify you and point people to Jesus Christ, even as we talk about everything that pertains to life. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, I want to jump right into uh, topic of the week. Topic of the week this week uh, is brought to us um, by actually Dan's ministry. Parents, you are not alone. Uh, I'm going to read the description real quick. Does life feel like a blur at times between after-school activities, work, late nights with babies, paying bills, maintaining a strong marriage, or being a single parent, doing it all yourself? It's clear that life is not easy. Have you ever wanted to know what you, that you are not alone in all of this? Well, there's a place for you here, led by Dan and Amber Marcello. What time is that? It's Sunday mornings, 9.45 to 10.45, in the coffee house. Oh, nice. Um, so uh, as we kick off sort of this um, uh, unit is a strong word, but as we kick off this series about why the Bible matters to us today, um, I want to start by talking about something that isn't in the Bible, um, talking a little bit about the Apocrypha. Uh, for context, I grew up, I have never read anything from the Apocrypha. Um, 
and and I think Bill will probably be the best at explaining what it is, but I understand it's like books that were written during the 400 years between the Old and New Testament. Yes. Right? Yes. So what is it? Well, they are non-inspired Christian slash Jewish writings. They did come up in that period called the intertestamental period when there was no perceived prophet of God. And they're not evil. They're simply not up to grade in terms of being in the canon of Scripture. And this also is the answer to the question of what is different about the Catholic Bible versus the Protestant Bible. The Catholic Bible has 14 more books than the Protestant Bible, and those 14 books are the apocryphal books. And the Catholics did not even accept them into the canon of Scripture until 1546 at the Council of Trent. So it took a long time for them to get into the Scriptures, even in the Catholic Church. Okay. How do we know they're not inspired? Did they say that they're not inspired? They don't claim to be inspired, okay. like 2 Timothy 3.16 claims to be the inspired Scriptures. and. Right. Proverbs 35, 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. So you don't have that in the apocryphal books. But even if you did, they just aren't as good. It's sort of like watching a team like the um, Golden State Warriors of the last five years play basketball, and then watching the Chicago Bulls play. It's just real obvious one belongs in a championship game and the other one really doesn't. Okay. So I have a, a question off of that then. How would we respond to someone who might raise the objection, well, you're just picking and choosing you know, what you want to be in your Bible. You're leaving out these parts that, oh, they don't make the grade, but who's to say what the grade is? Yes. And I wrestled with that question my whole first year of seminary because I felt called to the ministry, but I had questions about the authenticity of the scriptures and if they weren't really authoritative, inspired, inerrant, I didn't want to give my life to that. Right. So in answer to your question, Scott, how do we know? There were all these different standards the rabbis applied to what is causing us to realize these scriptures, such as the Psalms, really are scriptures. And these other works, the Book of Enoch, for instance, aren't really up to par. And I'm, I'm sure it took a long time to get it all teased out. And a lot of great minds worked on it. But they came up with some standards such as the prophets need to be the writers of the Old Testament scriptures. And they need to be accurate. They can't have any false prophecies. Okay. They need to be historically accurate. So the apocryphal books don't meet those measures right away. So those, those are two things that are big deals. Sure. Okay. There's even the similar criteria for the, the New Testament books, too, which was, was this written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle? It wasn't like... Well, we're going to pick out books out of the, the thin air or, or books that we think are good based on our own merits or our own criteria. It's like, did this person know an apostle? 
okay, if they didn't, they're discarded. Then this book is not going to be considered. Does it line up with what the rest of the Bible is saying? Is it on like yes. the same yes. basic message? Mm-hmm. Is there, can we see like a, a unique like strand of what God is doing here that we can also see in this other book? Is this, this is, that was an evidence of like this should be included in the canon or not? Well, there, there was other considerations when it comes to the, the New Testament as well. Okay. So in knocking books out of like contention, like mm-hmm. knocking them out of the running for being in the Bible, if you get knocked out, what does that mean? Like, does that mean that you are, like, you're not evil, as you've said? Because mm-hmm. one of my fears when it came to the Apocrypha was like, well, okay, it was decided, and I don't know much about the selection process for what is and isn't in our Bible. Mm-hmm. It was decided that this didn't make the grade, and I'm like, my fear was always like, is this harmful? Like, in reading this and, like, thinking about this going to, like, you know, uh, set me off course, I guess. Okay. Well, I don't think it would for a private believer, mm-hmm. but if you're going to direct the church, in this case, we'll say the Catholic church, they did get off the beam by taking directives from the Apocrypha. And one way that they got off the beam was with the matter of purgatory. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's no mention of purgatory in the scriptures. And in fact, the Apocrypha doesn't use the word purgatory, but it describes what we would call purgatory. I think that's in the book of 2 Maccabees, right? Yes, yes. It's really fascinating. In 2 Maccabees 12, a battle takes place, and they are surveying the dead on the battlefield, and as they do that, they look under their tunics, and they keep finding that the righteous battle warriors had amulets up against their body, which were considered uh, something that demons would be be involved with. And so they were shocked, and they thought, oh no, what are we going to do? We've got all these people that we thought were believers, and they were really trusting in their amulets to protect them, and obviously that didn't work because they're lying here dead on the battlefield. What are we going to do? And they come up with a solution. We're going to pray them out of purgatory and into heaven. Hmm. And what, what ends up evolving, I think, is fascinating. This becomes a great fundraiser in mm-hmm. the church. Sure. And whenever you come up with ways to make money, you do not let go of that. Mm-hmm. You just don't. That's true. So... As time went on, and we're talking a lot of time, we're, we're talking over a thousand years. As time went on, this business of praying for the dead became extremely lucrative and was one of the pillars by which the church could raise money to fight the Crusades against the Muslims. Oh, wow. So now you've got this extra justification of, sure. well, you don't want the Muslims taking over the world, you know, pray for your dead ancestors. In fact, we'll pray for you. Just put money towards this mass and and we'll pray them out of purgatory. Okay. Well, in the Crusades too, like well, then the first crusade, I don't know if it was Pope Urban, which Urban it was, like, it's escaping me, but I think he sent out the thing saying, anyone that goes to fight, your sins will be forgiven. Yeah. You go. Yeah. You go fight, your sins are done. <laughs> 
you're sitting there forgiving me. It's like, who is the authority to do that? But but, I mean, that was really the Uncle Sam wants you slogan with the Mm. church. They really, it was way more than religious. It was social political in a big way. And then you get these hilarious things like the priest coming and saying, you know, your Uncle Joe is close. He can almost jump out now. I think one more mass and we could get him out of here. So, of course, well, yeah, let's give the money to that and we'll get Uncle Joe out of purgatory. It just became ludicrous. Right. I think that's one of the reasons why Martin Luther reacted so strongly and the Protestant Reformation came about. One of those reasons was this idea of, like Bill saying, about money making and the sale of indulgences to, to free souls from purgatory. Yeah. And the, the, there was a crazy phrase going around at that time of as soon as the coin rings in the coffer, the soul from purgatory springs. And so that's yeah. something that Martin Luther just negatively, yeah. negatively reacted to. Said this can this can't be. This is not what the Bible teaches. Hmm. This is wrong. Yes. You see, but the reason why the Catholics, the Catholic governing body, actually wants those books, it actually supports what they True. teach. Makes so it's sense. like, and there is like there is there's a justification reason yes. behind it of like we yes. want like a moral reason, like a legitimate reason why we do this. So looking at that practice, there's obviously a degree of manipulation there that's inherently bad and and as christians we would say this this is you know extra biblical it's not really a biblical belief um so that kind of makes it questionable but what are the spiritual or theological implications of of that practice even if it weren't being financially you know kind of extorted are are there problems that we would need to warn people away from yeah well god abides in the truth so anytime you move ever so slightly away from the truth you're moving away from god and that's inherently evil. You don't want to move away from God. You always want to be moving toward him as best you can. So that's the biggest problem of all. Truth really matters. Um, when was when was like what we have in our church, like what I would consider like, I don't know, like a standard Protestant Bible, or is there a, a term for for it? Is there a term That's, for the Bible? <laughs> I, I think the term is canon. Okay. So no matter whether it's the New International Version or the King James Version, sure. it's it's the canon of Scripture. How long has the canon been what it is? Pretty nearly 1,900 years. Yeah, I would say between like two and 300 A.D. was when that was established. Yes. Okay. Athanasius was one of the main guys that compiled it who yeah so who is athanasius he's a was an egyptian priest okay yeah an egyptian christian yes christian priest Christian and prior to him you keep hearing this term the septuagint which is the greek version of the i I don't keep hearing oh we were just talking about that at la fitness this morning (laughs) the septuagint means Seventy rabbis work together to determine what what books belong in what we call the Old Testament. Okay. And they did this around 200 BC, and they were the ones that really BC BC. So that's during when the apocrypha is being written. Yes. Okay. And, and maybe the apocrypha even influenced that. Sure. That they thought, all right, we've really got to settle this. Mm-hmm. So they did this, and instead of it being a Hebrew Bible, it was for the Jews, but it was in the Greek language. Okay. And this is a big deal to all of us today that care about the scriptures, because 
they're showing books like Isaiah, Malachi, and the ones that have prophecies that get fulfilled, right. that completely obviates the um, criticism of, oh, the prophet wrote that after the fact. Right. He mm -hmm. wrote that in the New Testament era when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Then he sat down and wrote, right. he's going to come out of Bethlehem. No, he didn't, because here's this Greek Bible, 200 B.C., it's already got it in there. Yeah. So you got to give it at least 200 years of credit. Yeah. so like It's the, pretty cool. So is what they settled on our Old Testament now? Yes. Yeah. So nothing we, was like added or... We haven't added a book. We haven't subtracted a book. And then when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, what was it, like 1940, 1940, 1946, somewhere mm -hmm. around there, they found that, and Bill, maybe you can shed light on what year those were actually made, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't really recall the date. Well, they're but in the era of Jesus' life. They were exactly the same as what we, pretty much what we have in the Bible. There really yes. were very, very minimal grammatical differences. Yes, yeah. which that's an awesome discovery. They yeah. found the entirety of the book of Isaiah, for instance. Which is thought, a very important book. Oh, yeah. yes. And they thought, okay, how much corruption takes place over the years? Right. And so they have this Dead Sea Scroll version of Isaiah... And the oldest copy they had prior to that was 950 A.D. Hmm. So here's, here's a thousand-year mm -hmm. differential. They're looking at this and thinking, all right, now we're going to find out how much corruption. And it was nil. Hmm. It was just amazing. It shows the science of Bible copyists was really exact, that they were meticulous. And hmm. they, they did not allow for anything to creep into the scriptures. And the reality is there's a lot of these objections like the one about, oh, they, they wrote these prophecies after the fact um, that people will potentially raise that just have no historical grounding mm -hmm. at all. They, they can say them and it sounds nice and it's hard to refute if you don't know much because like, well, who, we weren't there. Like, who can say for sure? But there's all sorts of historical and archaeological evidence that just refutes some pretty difficult otherwise uh, claims mm -hmm. like that one or, you know, some of the some of the faux gospels that that came out like those were written you know 100 years too late to be included like to what Dan was saying earlier with the apostolic authorship or that's exactly right yeah and i think that's a big issue for people today because it feels like maybe you guys have felt this every like other easter every three easter season like third easter season like something comes up like oh there was this lost gospel yeah and mm -hmm. oh man now we just can't wait to see what this says because this this is like contradicting and then and in the, what the Bible says, and they were this book was excluded on purpose because it was really the truth. But really, you've got the weight of history behind this, of people like Bill was saying, who not too long after Jesus' death were compiling these things. Right. Even in the Bible itself, Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Yes. At the mm. end of Second Peter. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's like, how do you? How could you, like Scott saying? How do you really refute that? It's because that's Peter, the man who. Yeah, I mean, it's Peter. I don't even know, like <laughs> the man who was with Jesus all the time, who denied Saying, him three hey, times. Who? This is my my fellow apostle over here. He's writing scripture. And didn't Paul, in one of his letters, kind of call out Peter, too? Mm -hmm. Yes. And also, Paul, I believe it's in First Corinthians fifteen, says, "You can talk to the people who saw mm -hmm. the risen Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. those people were still living. What a testimony of." You can just walk up and ask them yourself. Right. So then, so 
to that, like, you know, we, I appreciate that that helps like make a divide in my mind where it's not just like we decided that there was 400 years of silence and there is. So anything written in that gets discounted. But like during that time, there is this process. So what then to anyone, like a member of Bloomingdale Church, to, to any, you said like a private you know, believer as an individual, mm-hmm. what is like the value that you think we could get out of reading the, the uh, sections of the Apocrypha and keeping in mind that it's not inspired by God? If any. Is there any? There might be a little bit because the book of Jude mentions the book of Enoch by name. Okay. And then you have Paul mentioning poets that were contemporary to him, which says to me, Paul is well-read. Jude is reading more than just the Bible. That They're thinking about all of these matters and integrating them. It gives me more confidence in the Bible. Hmm. Because you have real good thinkers yeah. who are writing the Bible. Right. So Jude references Enoch. Yes. But Enoch is not in the canon. Correct. Why would he? I mean, did Jude know that that Enoch wasn't inspired by God? Yes. I, I believe he knew that, but that doesn't mean that Enoch didn't say something that was truthful at that point. Hmm. It's Honestly, it's murky in my mind. When I read Jude... I find it mind-bending. It's, it's not an easy book to read and understand. Sure. Hmm. Was Jude one of the ones that was included a little later, kind of like Hebrews? There was kind of doubt in the, in the minds of the people who were putting together the canon of, is this, should we include this, should we not? Yes. You know, what that really boiled down to was you get those latter books like Hebrews, First and Second Peter, mm-hmm. First and Second Third John, Jude. Revelation. Sometimes they weren't included like that because they were at the end of the scroll. And sometimes a scroll would break off. And so you lose those last 10 books, let's say. And so that causes the later scholar to say, wait a minute, it wasn't in that scroll. And then they had to come to the realization, oh, we can see the tear marks. Maybe that's what happened. So you got to ferret all that out. But the fact that it took time to ferret it out says they were really careful about it. They didn't right. just yeah. make snap decisions. Hmm. <laughs> I think I've exhausted my questions. <laughs> um, one other thing, when it comes to relationships with um, you know, Catholic friends, people who do believe in, in like the Book of Enoch and things like mm-hmm. that, what, what is your advice on like how to go about talking about the apocrypha, both like knowledgeably, but also you know recognizing that we don't believe that it's spoken by God. It's never come up. I hmm. really have rarely met a Catholic Bible reader who was into this with any depth. Okay. But on a positive note, I read the book of Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. Right. Ecclesiasticus is used at weddings. And there's a beautiful passage there. And I remember my cousin being uh, married in a Catholic church, had that chosen, and I was a scripture reader for that service. It, it was beautiful. I mean, it was really beautiful. So mm-hmm. that's why I don't want to come off as negative about the Apocrypha. Yeah. There's, 
it's sort of like having a beautiful passage from Shakespeare in your marriage ceremony. Hmm. Fine. I've never had it come up here, but I know when I was living in Latin America, I had friends, it was very Catholic culture, friends that would be sharing about Jesus and then people of the Catholic faith that they knew would bring that up as like, well, your Bible is missing books. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it was valuable to learn the history and to see, okay, they, they weren't included because, you know, wasn't written by an apostle, to, to know the facts of, and then also that these books weren't included until 1546 mm. by the Council of Trent. There was a really big lapse of time that over a thousand years went by. You know, it would be like us setting a, the best music of the 20th century and someone coming 1,200 years from now and saying, I think you missed a few songs. I think we're going to add a few. <laughs> be like, well, they weren't there. They didn't know. <laughs> uh, they might have missed Lighthouse. <laughs> that's an obscure band. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, all right. I think we can call it there. I think once we make it to Lighthouse, we can um, call it a draw. Um before we go, I want to go uh, give everybody a chance to kind of plug the things that are going on. I know we've got a couple adult ed classes, but what do you do? You guys have anything that's either ongoing? You know, like I teach the IPSAC class, but that's about to end. We're gonna have another one uh, in the middle of April, but something that's either upcoming event for you or or uh, just an ongoing thing you want to invite people to. Well, anyone like Max read at the beginning. Anyone's always welcome if they have kids ages birth through eighteen years old. We have two young families classes going on, the You're Not Alone class on uh, Sunday mornings, 9.45 to 10.45. Great group. We have coffee. Don't just come for the coffee. Come for the fun and conversation and good content. Uh, But we'd love to have you. And also Wednesday nights, 6.30 to 8, we have dinner. We are doing a parenting course. So anyone with kids, welcome to come. We'd love to have you. Yeah, uh, I guess I have two. One is uh, if you're a young married couple, we'll say... I like mid-30s or under. Uh, we've got a small group that meets on Wednesday nights in my house, which is the lower level of the gray house on the church property. Um, and we just started this past week a, a series on apologetics and evangelism, which is kind of some of the stuff that we're getting into today a little bit. Um, so we started started the series with, uh, is the Bible valid? Is it trustworthy? And then next week we're top, uh, tackling rather um, different world religions and why Christianity, we believe, is the only one that works. Um, and we have, you know, 10 or so different topics, and then we'll move into practical evangelism um, training and stuff. And then uh, if you love to sing, this Saturday from 9.30 to 11 in the sanctuary, we're starting our Good Friday choir practices. Uh, I'm really excited for this Good Friday service. We're going to be doing something kind of different, sort of interspersing uh, the scripture of, of Jesus' journey to the cross in his last, you know, day or two, uh, interspersed with, with music that relates directly to the different elements like the Garden of Gethsemane or Peter's Denial and stuff like that. Uh, And the choir is going to be playing a big role in that. So looking forward to that. Hope you'll join us on Saturdays. Glad to hear the choir's coming for Good Friday. (laughs) Yes. I'm thinking about something we're doing this summer called Financial Peace Hmm. Churchwide. Financial Peace has been terrific. The average person finds himself paying off $5,200 in debt in a nine-week period of time and saving $2,800 during that same nine weeks. And I don't understand how that works, but I've seen it with my own eyes over and over again at our church. So the whole church is being asked to take financial peace this summer. And if you're interested in being one of the teachers, we're probably going to have roughly 10 classes going on throughout the summer. Come to the training classes, which will be 
begin April the 19th on Sunday mornings and run through the end of May. And you'll be taking financial peace, but then you'll also be ready to turn around and teach it to a class in the summertime. Awesome. Um, well, as always, uh, if you would like to be a part of the show and send in questions or things that you're interested in, you can email podcast at bloomingdalechurch.org. Um, without anything else, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dan. Thank this you, Max, is, for having me. Yeah, this is the Bloomingdale Church podcast. Goodbye. They'll say 300 fell because he had the jawbone of an ass. Yeah. You just think, what? That, that's not even a weapon. <laughs> that's like, it's a blunt object. It's like saying he did it with this Taco Bell cup. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Man, it's impressive.